Aloha and welcome to Reflections on Interpretation, talking story with guides and interpreters. I am Tim Merriman, your host, coming to you from the Big Island of Hawaii. Today I'm speaking with Claire Savage of Savagely Creative and her spouse and uh, colleague Rusty Creighton, who is a freelance guide that works in a variety of venues, both of them in Western Australia and Margaret River area. Well, it's great to see you again, Claire and Rusty. I I was just looking through my calendar and I can't find the year that Lisa and I were down there with you in Western Australia. Do you recall? Yeah, 2015? Yeah. Well, that could be. I know I remember it with great memories and fondness for um, both your generous hospitality and just the landscape and everything that you shared with us while we were there. It was really amazing. I want to go back in time. I can, if I, a bit, you are, am I correct? You're both working for Savagely Creative now? Sort of, but not really. Okay. Yeah. First of all, I'm I'm going to recall that Rusty has a whole nother profession away from interpretation, something to do with meat. Yeah. So I was trained as a butcher and did that for, so my life journey has been from, Meet to please you, to please to meet you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, he's a he's a trained butcher and a skilled butcher. And do you do that anymore? No, I haven't had to do that for. I, I'm pretty much doing guiding uh, full time. Um, okay. Yeah. So, um, and in the great southwest of Western Australia now too. So, so a little bit further south from Perth as well. So, yeah. I I was looking it up. You're at Margaret River area now, and yep. about two and a half hours south of Perth. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what would that be equivalent? About 160, 170 miles from 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 Perth. Yeah. Yeah. And if if I recall, uh, Claire, aren't you from Great Britain originally? Yeah, I'm from London originally. But, a long time ago, there. Twenty seven, twenty eight years. Yeah. But Rusty, yeah. you grew up in Australia. Yeah, I grew up in Perth and um, lived in other other parts. Um, Travelled like most Aussies do. <laughs> Explored the world a little bit. We even talked once. I think you had a relative that had lived in Southern Illinois, where I come from. Yeah, yeah. So on my father's side, they were from um, from Ireland, uh, from Arna, and yeah. they'd gone to Illinois in the and made that momentous decision in, uh, during the Civil War to to um, emigrate somewhere else as well, and they ended up in southeastern Australia, Victoria, yeah. But yeah. he called his house when he built at Illinois, and, you know, I guess that was, you know, that aspect of why you, you, you're intrigued by story, you're really connected by story, and your family story is always one that really captures your imagination. Claire, you, you have worked kind of in a variety of roles that include, d did it ever include guiding? No, I mean, I've done a couple of guiding stints just as a, just for a bit of fun, really, because I think it's more fun when you don't do it for a living. Yeah. Um, but I've done a lot of, particularly in, in my in my role at Savagely Creative, I've done a lot of interpretation planning. So lots and lots of um, helping places to tell their stories. And when I was at um, in South Australia, I worked for national parks and my team was responsible for all the interpretation. 
that we did in the parks. And then I kind of really got into it initially when I was in Western Australia back in the late 90s, early 2000s, when I um, I worked on the one, one of the first interpretation conferences we had in WA, and I was doing nature-based tourism then for Tourism WA. So, yeah, I kind of floated in and out of it. I tend not to be at the pointy end too often. When you grew up in London, did, did you have a notion of what you would be doing one day? No, I always thought I was, well, I, I wanted to um, do hotel management because I went on holiday once. I only went on one package holiday and I thought, oh, this looks like fun. Um, but I never never quite got there because it, it was a bit restrictive. So I ended up doing just business for my first degree. And then my best pal was in Glasgow doing um, tourism. I didn't know that was a thing then. So uh, I went up and visited her when she was in Glasgow and I thought, well, this is absolutely fun. So I ended up doing the same course. So one of very few people in the in the country that had a tourism degree at that point, well, it was a master's at that point. Um, but yeah, it was uh, it was an interesting time because it was like the, it was about 91, 92 and we had a bit of a recession happening so I think of the 30 people on the course only about four of us actually ended up in a job doing tourism but yeah no it was a good it was a good start. Rusty what was your growing up years like and what did you plan to do or be? I was just getting through I grew up in a fairly industrial sort of suburb uh, pretty tough school Um, and um, yeah it was a way to uh, I left school when I was 15 to to do a butchering apprenticeship. Um, so it was really just about getting out of that sort of environment and, you know, sort of learning learning skills was something I didn't like. A, well, I you know, you don't even think about it when you're at that stage, I don't think, as well. So, yeah, and so sort of progressed through, through that sort of journey as well. We moved... Uh, from where we were living into a different a hill suburb, like a different suburb, which was a different socioeconomic area. And and I, I formed some new friendships and the likes as well. Um, yeah, and then I, I think, well, you know, they say travel is always the best education as well and it opens up your world to so many different uh, places as well. And so, you know, through my teens and 20s you know I just went off on different adventures and um yeah it sets you up for life in that respect um I you know came to tourism quite late probably in my you know early 40s uh through through friendships and you know largely it was you know that whole family journey which intrigued my interest and and always um and and with Claire being in an industry you you do get to meet people and and you know that was uh very interesting people and i i found my skill my life skill sets were probably you know in that sort of field as well too so yeah and you had a talk <laughs> you're, well you're a natural storyteller <laughs> yeah and storytelling yeah i think that's the, that's the key you know you find those stories and um and then um and and what i love about what I do is also that that it, it's not just a one-way street that you're telling people. It's that interaction with people who share their 
their um, uh, insights and perspectives and sometimes that shifts your whole set of thinking about and that's what the, the, the beautiful thing about we all come from different places but um, um, that um, commonality. that commonality of of humans I suppose so yeah connecting you to to that place you know that's the power of it yeah I always suggest that good interpretations of conversation and a yeah. lecture is bad bad interpretation because yeah. it's so easy to disengage from someone who's lecturing yeah. yeah and as soon as you get a conversation going every everyone's involved and that's that's great um i'm trying to remember in 2015 if that's when we were there with you um you were leading guided tours or on some sort of strange device a machine oh yeah the segway machines yeah segway <laughs> I, I can never think of the name of that but that's because i've never seen one up close and i really know nothing about them yeah 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 uh, so that was really you know essentially people would come because they wanted to ride on the machine um um and it was a different way and and you you they were fitted with a you know sort of a, a radio device so you were talking through, um, so there's lots of things going on, but it, it is that thing where, well, sometimes when people, uh, it, it initially when I first started doing, cause I was used to face-to-face, -face, um, guided walking tours and the likes as well, um, that you're not getting that interaction. You don't know whether you're landing your mark straight away. You're also pointing out hazards <laughs> as well as scenic aspects as well. Um, so it's, um, it was like my mother, she had eyes in the back of her head and um, you, you sort of have to develop those skills as well. Um, yeah, so you're teaching them that skill, but also getting them to see that place in a really different way. And especially um, I was doing some work out at Rottnest Island, Wajamup, which is, um, you know, about 20 kilometres off the coast of, Western Australia is of Perth. Great, beautiful, beautiful part of the world, but it also has a challenging history of being an Aboriginal prison at times as well. So it was kind of, and even local people, you know, from from Western Australia, getting them to see that place in, and you're doing a fun activity, but you're also getting to see the place in a deeper, getting deeper meaning to the place as well. Yeah. We've trained quite a lot the last 10 years in Rwanda. And of course, they had a genocide in 94. And part of the conversation is people from the West, from Europe and America, and I from Australia, going to Rwanda, really very often have no idea how deeply that affected virtually everyone in the country. And, yeah. and I always we lead ecotourists there occasionally. And we always take people to the, they have a wonderful museum that interprets the genocide. And we take people there first to try to answer all those questions. But uh, I always suggest that if, when someone says interpretation should always be fun, I always think it should always be engaging, but fun may yeah. not be the right word. That we, yeah. we, take, we take people to some stories that are pretty challenging 
about people being imprisoned or being interned or worse yet being killed in a genocide. And so understanding that's as important as understanding a reef ecosystem or a forest or something else. Claire, what led to creating Savagely Creative? I kind of always wanted to do it when I when I finished my um my first degree was that about two thousand and or nineteen eighty eight God I'll get um <laughs> twenty five years <laughs> yeah and I went to I went to live in the west country of of um, the UK down in Bristol before I came traveling and I remember saying to like a recruitment person oh yeah no, ultimately I want to have my own consultancy so that was back in eighty eight. I had no idea what that meant, but you know, you say things like that. Um, but when I came back from uh, South Australia, so we came back to WA in 2007, and I thought, why not? I'll just give it a go. Why not? You know, if, if it fails, I can get another job. She'll be right. And then I started it pretty much as the global financial crisis hit. So that was quite interesting. <laughs> but it's still going, you know. So, and I think for me, um, because I had such strong networks in WA, it was actually relatively simple for that business to take off. And pretty much most of what I did in that first couple of years was interpretation planning. So, you know, I worked with lots of other, um, I worked with a designer, I worked with um, other tourism folk and was able to, uh, I was, I was just, really lucky to be able to kind of ride the wave of inter planning that was happening at the time so in WA we have a thing called Lottery West which is a it's a it's a lotto it's a state lottery so you buy your tickets on a whatever night it seems to be every night I think they've got something but then a percentage of that money comes back and is put back into the community so it's a fairly large percentage of it goes back into the community and they had a whole program on heritage interpretation which was like amazing. So pretty much most of that first five years of my business was funded by doing inter plans through that program. So working with community groups and whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I, my perception may or may not be correct, but from spending a little time with you folks there, my impression when we were in Western Australia was that tourism and interpretation are much more intertwined than they are in the U S yeah. I've taught hospitality here on the islands for about seven or eight years at a community college. And I'm just really aware yeah. that I see nothing about interpretive experience design or anything similar um, in hospitality literature. I've never heard it talked about at a conference. And it's just a whole nother world. And interpretation here is more rooted in state parks, national parks, yes. zoos, museums, and tourism certainly has an interface with all of those institutions. But I've always wondered why communities are not more interested in walking tours and telling the unique stories of communities and in interpretive planning, protecting the unique integrity of a community, not letting yeah. a, developer, a developer come in and totally change the town's facade or whatever. Mm. Or you work a lot with communities, is that correct? Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and interestingly, um, interpretation 
it's almost built into the development commission uh, de development conditions so i did a a project in a place called onslow which is how many hours north 10 11 hours north of here um and there's um, a massive gas field off off that part of the coast so it's quite an industrial um kind of mining part of the coast and a major company um was building an, a new refining or uh, processing plant there and part of the development commit development conditions was that they developed the interpretation of the old town that used to be there so it was kind of a ghost town it was only you know floors a couple of walls and one kind of half of a building but they had to invest properly in a you know fully um costed fully developed fully delivered interpretation plan um which I, I don't know that that happens anywhere else in the world. You know, they might say, oh, you've got to put a park in for the kiddies or whatever, but it, particularly if there's heritage involved, interpretation is a really big part of any heritage conservation. Um, and National Parks obviously does interpretation. I'm just doing a project now for Lewin Naturalist National Park and even just doing a review of it a couple of days ago. The interpretation signage is really minimal. You know, so they you would think that they would be the center of interpretation, but obviously they don't have the funding to put it everywhere. So it's probably it, potentially one of the visit most visited. It is parks the most visited and, park yeah. in the state. It's over four million visitors, which probably doesn't sound very much to you, but it's quite big for Australian standards. But but it's that um I think people understand the importance of um of getting folk connected. So there's lots of stuff here about sense of place and connecting to place and activating place and engaging community so you can't just barrel in and go okay well these here's the stories we're going to tell here's where we're going to put all the signs thanks very much for coming off we go we're all done this the, this project i'm looking at now has got two phases of inter of of consultation so one with the general community so that might be parks people in conservation people, tourism folk, operators, all, all of the above. And then the second consultation looks at engaging the um, Aboriginal community. And I think in the last maybe five, six years, there's been a real uptick in understanding the importance of engaging Aboriginal people in telling the story of the place. And that's that's a real change, a real shift. But, but from a tourism point of view, I was gonna say in South Australia, probably about 10 years ago, they actually built interpretation into their tourism plan. So they had a statewide tourism plan and they built Interpin as part of it. And I think that's probably the first time I've ever seen that. So I don't know if you know Jane James. She used to be at Flinders University. Remember, yes, I've met her. I don't. Yeah, so she Wait. was on the tourism board at that point, but she managed to just get them thinking about that. And you perhaps heard about the fire in Lahaina, Maui, yeah, awesome. north of us. A very historic, you know, heritage community. And it traded on it. It very much attempted to get people to understand the unique Hawaiian community, the unique fisheries and, and related journey that people had been through in that community. Now the community's wiped out. And yeah. They're in a controversy locally about how to rebuild. And of course, um, there are factions that just want to go up 
again, as fast as they can go. And there will be a lot of convenience stores and a lot of souvenir shops. And there are factions that want to slow down and identify what it is they want. Yeah. We wrote a book called Put the Heart Back in Your Community that was all about interpretive planning at the community level. And it sold dozens of copies. I think it'll be a collector's item someday. I <laughs> Uh, in my in my extensive library <laughs> yeah yeah uh, but it didn't catch on here and i i got around to a number of community planning conferences and things and made presentations no takers it just it fell pretty much on deaf ears and my my concern is honolulu is a good example uh the look of honolulu is very much big tall buildings and souvenir shops and kind of ticky tacky in my opinion yeah. but they're yeah, homogenous and plastic yeah hid, hidden amongst it is genuine hawaiian heritage but developers come in with big money mm. and very often with the ability to influence local local politics and do things that boy i I think would be much better done with an interpretive plan that thinks about what's the experience you want people to have. Yeah, yeah. And I love looking at your website. What do you no. mean evangelist? Well, I think it's it's all about um it's all about getting people just so completely behind a concept or a place just through engaging them with the story. It's like Rusty was saying earlier, it's creating that connection so that you go from somebody you know when you go into a place you see it at, at a particular level so you go, oh, there's trees and there's shops and this is really nice and blah blah and then you know somebody will tell you a story about something and then somebody else will tell you a story about something else and then you start to get a real understanding and connection and I think something like interpretation helps you to it's almost like doing that connection on steroids so you're kind of getting in there really really fast you're getting under the skin and somebody once said to me, it's it's revealing the secrets of a place. It's it's helping people to really connect. And and if you don't have that, you've got tiki-taki plastic shops with tea towels and spoons, which is fine. There's a place for that if people want that. But but I think if you actually want to make a general gen, genuine connection, then you actually have to have an understanding of the story of the place, good, bad, or indifferent. You know, even 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 the bad stories help you help you really understand why people and place are, are as they are. Um, so yeah, I, I think I just think it's really really important that you've got that. And and about like as you say, what's the experience you want people to have? And that whole kind of place making conversation, which which was really popular here, probably maybe five ten, 10 years yeah, ago, yeah. and and kind of went off the boil a little bit. But it's still it's still very much the same. Um, you know it's that understanding the essence of a place and if you take that into a marketing kind of thing it's the it's the brand it's the it's the brand proposition for a place is very much that kind of core message yeah I as you know we we're big advocates for training hosts in a community for training mm. clerks and uh yeah wait, wait staff and all of those people who are on the front line that talk to the public so that it, it's literally a community team of people that have similar values and interests 
who are really yeah. those secrets, those stories in the community that might not get out in other ways. Yeah. But it's not easy but to get out. whole line of the rising tide lifts all the boats. Absolutely. If everyone's got the same values message, you know, you, you are going to uplift because it comes from, you know, core values and, and the likes as well. And, we, um, when I was, I was going to say, when I was in Glasgow, there was a real push for that. Um, what do they call it? Welcome host. I think it was called then. It, it came out of Canada. I think Banff maybe. And it was, it was exactly what you're saying. It was, it was engaging the taxi drivers, the bank tellers, the shopkeepers, everyone to understand that they're all part of the experience and probably more part of the experience than tour operators or hoteliers because they're the ones that people are seeing almost in the wild, you know, they're the, they're the folk that are there that aren't trained to be tourism. They're having the prolonged conversations with people. Yeah, uh, and the most profound effect. Yeah. Uh, in fact, two feet in a heartbeat. Yeah, I did. Well, it's great. I, I tend to work. I work for a few firms that um, have catchy names like that as well. So, yeah. Um, that's your business uh, name, yeah? No, no. I just um, well, that's just um, worked and guided for for the guys that started that particular company as well. And um, um, you know, they were as much friends as as employers as well too. And you know that you know when I, when I was starting off my guiding journey as such, you know, they were great, and and they still are great mentors uh, for me as well as well. Um, and they did arrange what I always loved about working for those guys is, you know, they started off doing heritage tours and Claire was talking about that, you know, how they engage people to that and walking tours. Um, they really kicked off that whole movement really, yeah, the, didn't they? Yeah, the first, so it's two young fellas, both of them are called Ryan, which makes life easier. <laughs> and one's Australian, one's Canadian. And they're great mates and they decided that there was a hole in the market and nobody was doing heritage tours. And there was probably a reason for that because most yeah. heritage tours are just really boring. So they managed to to really change people's perceptions and, and also perceptions of Perth. So Perth was always identified by people on the East Coast as being boring. So they, they thought, that, oh, there's nothing happening in Perth. There's no, you know, it's, it's not a happening place. And they managed to really, they were part of that movement that really flipped people's view of Perth. Yeah. Um, well, the city of Perth, it's, that was the heritage Perth um, yeah. um, aspect. So, uh, and that's where good um, guides or companies yeah. sort of tap into Sorry. the relationships they have with, all those other different agencies and, and the likes yeah. as well. And you're, you're working together in that respect as well. They too. were super so, smart though. They're super smart guys. They won all the tourism awards and the heritage awards and yeah. all of that sort of thing because to be able to give it credibility. Um, but they also made it fun. Like yeah. Young people taking you on a walking tour around a city and showing you the underbelly of it, showing you what 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 all those old buildings were about and why is there a park here and who's that old dude up on a plinth and yeah you know some great you know some great little um scandalous stories about murders and whatever you know they really engaged you in those early days of Perth when you know for, for Western Australia I think there were 2,000 people here for the first 70 years you know there was no one here at all they 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 just 
didn't have any people and the most enormous part of the country is I think it's a third of the country Western Australia so you know they're like oh okay we've got some good stories to tell and then they on the back of that they built in we 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 started to have about 2009 they allowed small bars and so there was became a small bar culture so all these little bars would pop up in the laneways whereas in the past it used to be that you could only get get a drink if you were having a substantial meal and they changed the liquor licensing um rules and they were just there at exactly the right time and were able to kind of ride that but all of it was about it's not just about going and having a drink. It's about telling the stories of the city on the way. Yeah, yeah. looking up, seeing those tiny little things because there's a story in every yeah. everything that you see around the place as well, and just finding that. Um, yeah. yeah, John Pastorelli, like yeah. you, you know John, yeah, John Pastorelli. Um, and he is a good one ad- advocate of of that aspect as well, and you know finding you know your core core story but building something around yeah. around that that's really going to engage people as well yeah we um, would say that the most important themes the ones that kind of yeah. hold together and, and create a bigger story uh, yeah yeah we were we worked for a while with a fellow out of arizona named dan Schilling, who uh, promoted a concept called civic tourism mm. and uh he had been made I'm going to get the name wrong of the commission, but the director of something in Arizona at the state level that bought all the advertising for tourism. And I think it was humanities, uh, director of humanities for Arizona. As odd as that sounds, director of humanities, he had like a 13, 14 million dollar a year budget and it was spent entirely on advertising. And when he took over, he says, we're not going to do it that way. He says, we're going to start spending money communicating back with the communities that we interpret, finding out what they think we should be doing. We're going to start investing in local attractions that tell our story well. We're going to, uh, and I, I just thought it was brilliant, but he said, you know, we just think that if you buy a million dollars worth of ad buys and golf magazines, that that's okay. He says it, (laughs) we're just serving the needs of a few golf resorts and not all these mom and pop stores and communities that are living off of um, tourism in an entirely different way. Because some of those golf resorts, people don't even leave them. They go there and stay the corporate community the entire time and really do nothing for the local community. It'd be like the the land-based equivalent of a cruise, wouldn't it? Yeah. Well, Cruises, as you probably know, or you get cruises, don't you, where you are? Yeah, yeah, yeah. starting to, yeah. They're becoming so it's interesting when people come to Margaret River on the cruise, they don't realise they're coming to Bustleton because that's a major, like, port area as well. Um, so it's just that but because Margaret have a River, I guess, and it's built its back on, you know, the wine industry, which is it's been successful in marketing, the region as a destination and you know the surfing the, the wine you know sort of fine foods and wines and and the likes as well that's really um but um yeah the surprise when we arrived at you know that that town and realized that you know the the other destination i think there is 50 kilometers away down the road so 
Western Australia is a plane flight from most places or a cruise. Um, who tends to be the clients? Who do you tend to have come there for tourism? From a tourism point of view, it's fairly high percentage West Australians. So depending on where you are. So for Margaret River, I think it's sitting around about 65% from Perth. And then the rest is made up of interstate and international. International's just starting to come back now. I think we're back at about 80% of international flights are back in. Um, for other parts of the state, it could be 80 or 90% Perth and then 6 or 7% interstate and a couple of percent international. just depends on how well it's known. But Margaret River and the Kimberley are probably the two that are known outside of Western Australia. So they're the ones that will have a, a slightly less reliance on Perth people. And how crushing was the pandemic? Because it, it just virtually tourism disappeared for us for two years. It had virtually no impact on us at all. Really? Well, because we're so we we are, you know, and Perth, you know, is one of the most isolated, you know, cities in the world, and you know, certainly our region is very isolated. I mean, it takes a day and a half to just to drive out of our state if you were driving straight. You know, sure. it's fifteen hundred kilometres to to the West Australian border. You know, so you know there was measures in place that we could just you know quarantine ourselves from the rest of the world. So, so um, it had an impact on international tourism, yes. obviously, because that stopped. So we had no, we've had no international tourism probably until when did we open up again? March? No, it was so, July, August last year. We opened the borders again. Yes. Um, but because because we are reliant on West Australians anyway, it just meant that more West Australians travelled because. They couldn't go out. They couldn't go out. So West Australians generally have a massive propensity for travel. For for West for Australians generally, they they like to travel, and it's built. It's actually built into everything that we do. So, I don't know if you have this in America, but we have a thing here called long service leave. Have you heard of that? No. So if you stay with a company over seven years, they give you a certain amount of time paid leave so it could be three I think it's about three months and it was yeah. originally set up because historically yeah. historically when the the civil service were setting up Australia they were given three months to go home and come back it took that length of time to get back to the UK have some time there and then come back so you have this chunk of leave which is still built into our our kind of work processes so if you stay somewhere for seven or ten years, you you can go and have a lovely holiday for three months anywhere you like, fully paid. <laughs> so, um, so everybody travels. Like it's just you know everybody does a year where they travel after school, or a lot of people do. Yeah. And then when they get older and they get their long service paid out, they go and do a massive trip somewhere. So and perhaps it is because everywhere is so far away. Yeah. That you want to have that time to. Able to, yeah. yeah, and then a big part of our, our tourism market, we call them grey nomads, where they basically buy a caravan, sell the house, and off they go. They do circuits of Australia, so it's it's just part of what we do. So when the pandemic hit, a little bit like your snowbirds in those, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Trying to get away from the cooler climates, yeah, yeah. But but this is just a thing, like so. People are starting to do it much younger now. They'll take the kids, but um. 
we had a shutdown for six weeks. So we shut all of the borders. So you couldn't travel anywhere. You couldn't travel outside your region. So Perth people couldn't come down. People from here couldn't go anywhere else. If you were the wrong side of the border when the, the gates shut, you had to prove that you were coming home or whatever. For legitimate reasons. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or so family was, or those sort of things. Which, yeah. which as a, like, you'll know as a, when you have a tourism honeypot, it gets quite tiring. And it was at the end of the the summer season, so everybody was just like, "Oh, that's all right. That's okay. <laughs> Have a little break. That'll be fine." And then when they opened the borders, it went mental. Some was... people had the best the best year year and a half that they'd ever had, or the busiest. Especially accommodation providers, yeah, um, even tour operators. Yeah, but certain tours like the I, I do some work for a company called McLeod Tours down here, and they primarily do. Um, they established links with Indian Pacific and um, you know, Train, other, other travel companies and was primarily pitched at the East Coast Australian and um, also international travellers mm -hmm. as well. So, but largely international. So their business just died yeah. uh, because they had set up that because the day tour market had been become really saturated with a lot of operators. Um, so um, I was fortunate in the respect that I did work for quite a few different operators. So, yeah, in that, in that respect, it was, yeah, I managed to um, spend myself, you know, between different operators at the time as well. The, the other thing that happened was the government gave everybody money. So when, when it first happened, they put in place a program where they basically paid you a percentage of your wages um, so that people could pay their mortgages and feed their families and pay the electricity. And in fact, they, they, they took away some of those payments so you didn't have to pay electricity for a couple of months. You know, while, whilst we worked out what the edges of this were, they, they really just stepped in. And it went from being a, a a position of oh my god what's going to happen now, to oh it's okay we're we're all right so you know you could register to get this this jobkeeper um, payment and Russ was working for a walking company at the time and they they paid all of their all of their guides during that time even though you weren't able to do any tours they just paid them because they'd yeah. been on the books for a while or whatever so it was it was a I don't. I don't know. That that ironically, was... it was through the, the the time of year where it was quiet. Anyway. The, where it was quieter, anyway. So yeah. I didn't feel like it. The, but it it meant that you know we could get through. And then after that three or so months, yeah. when you know the the local market started to pick up, and you know people would come down for wine tours mm -hmm. or or all those sort of things. That, you know, you did pick up other other yeah. forms of work as well too so. and then because we were isolated <clears throat> we didn't have interstate people coming we actually didn't have covid here for pretty much most of the time there was there was no covid in western australia so the east coast were being locked down victoria got locked down for six months or something people weren't allowed out of their houses or five kilometers yeah, yeah. And we were fine and then when they brought in their vaccine quite probably most people went and got it they just didn't didn't even quibble i mean you obviously get the, the the small minority that weren't interested but the government made it free um 
you know, so they did everything they could to protect West Australians. And whilst some people were a bit like, oh, you know, it's, the, it's yeah. a dictator state, blah, blah. I mean, I think most people in Western Australia were like, that's fine. <laughs> we're fine. Yeah. You just you just keep your disease over there. And then when it's all clear and we're all sorted, you can come back. <laughs> you're, yeah. much, you're welcome. The big factor here is that the resources is a very huge industry in Western Australia. Yeah. And because a lot of our resources are exported to, you know, iron ore and the lights are exported to China and the lights as well, um, the value went up significantly. So the government here were, were like, well, if this this has the potential to shut down our whole industry as well. Um, so it was a way of being able to keep things running economically um, and then that's a way to give back to those industries that were affected by it as well. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was an interesting time. It was different here because yeah. being islands, we were getting 35,000 arrivals a day average year round, and it dropped to less than 1,000. And so yeah. for two years, I would say local people like us enjoyed it. Yeah. Traffic was gone. Yeah. As you say, we didn't have much COVID because you just didn't have a lot of contact with other people. Mm. And when it came back, it came back fast and hard because mm. there was that pent up frustration of people wanting their trip to Hawaii. And yeah. uh, it's been very busy since. So uh, different. Yeah, time. it bounced back really fast, didn't it? I mean, yeah. I, I know people often say to me, oh, you know, when I was, um, we had the surf pro here in 2018 and there was a sh couple of shark attacks. And so they canceled the surf pro halfway through. And this um, journalist from ABC was like, Oh, so is that the end of civilization as we, you know, we know it, nobody will ever come back to Margaret river. I was like, no, they'll forget about it in a couple of weeks and they'll be back here. <laughs> it doesn't stop people. Yeah. A, a, a pandemic or a, you know, when SARS happened, we had massive drop in numbers. And then within a few weeks it was back even higher than it was before it's been like yo-yo dieting i think you know you come back with so much more and i think the same things happened with this whole covid thing people were so desperate to travel yeah they've just kind of got stuff i'm going and and it's just fully gone back to what it was before we went we led a eco tour to east africa to tanzania mm -hmm. rwanda a couple of years ago that before it was kind of all over 2022 and we had eight COVID tests along the way. Yeah. And to show you how that worked in uh, Tanzania, we landed at, at the airport and went in and they immediately made us go to a tent and have one of those fat quick tests taken yeah. and said, you'll get your results in about 15 minutes, sit over there. And we went to sit in a nice seating area. And in less than two minutes, someone came over and said, you're okay. So if you know anything about those quick tests, they did not wait for results. No. <laughs> it was the formality of it. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, and so we were amused, but we were also thrilled that uh, we got through eight tests, passing all of them and didn't get held up because we had that concern that you could just be told, well, you're in the hotel here for the next two weeks. Yeah, and yeah. Financially, it would be a huge burden for all Absolutely, of them. yeah. When you look at destination marketing, 
normally I don't think of interpretation people working with that, but that's actually a part of your role. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I'm, um, and it was, I'm doing it partly because um, consulting went really quiet after about a year and a half after the pandemic. So just nobody was, nobody was doing consult consulting. And I'd just done a strategy for um, the regional tourism organization for Bunbury Geograph, which is probably about an hour and a bit north of where we are now. So that's my daily commute at the moment. And they needed someone to help them out. So I jumped in because the Bunbury good. But it's actually it's actually really good fun. So Bunbury is the kind of the biggest city in the southwest. Um it's about an hour and a half out of Perth and yeah. about an hour north of here. So it's kind of in in between. Um it's not known as a tourism destination, even though it is, it's got some really cool tourism things. It's good. Like you can go and interact with dolphins on the beach and they come in and say hello and stuff. So that's where your office is. So. Yeah. Our office yeah. overlooks that. So, but, but for me, like probably, I don't know, I think this had, it had this epiphany around about 2010 when I was doing a, I was doing a course on public speaking and they were talking about the theme of it. And I was like, this is inter. This is this is inter. This is totally inter. What are you talking about? And then I was like, oh, hang on a minute. Oh. And then looking at marketing as well, I was like, but well, that's inter too. That's what? Stop. <laughs> so it's it's quite interesting to have because I've my career's been quite varied. So I've done national parks, I've done heritage, I've done economic development, I've done food tourism. I've run my own consultancy and done all sorts of different things in that space. And you kind of see tools that look like they're for one discipline. So, you know, marketing, you know, we do SWOT analysis and we've got, you know, um, we do a core message and stuff like that. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. So in Inter, we've got, we've got a core message too. And then we have, you know, we've got all these sub themes, which are, you know, your little sub campaigns that you do for your marketing. So it, it's it's all the same. It's communication. It's telling telling stories in a way that's going to engage people. And marketing is exactly the same as inter. Um, and I think maybe because we don't just corral interp international parks here, we do it everywhere. That you can actually see those um, those linkages much easier. Yeah, I remember when we you were over, you and Lisa mm. were over, and we went out to Yahaba the coffee. Yeah. coffee place and you know sort of the presentation that was done and you know walking out and saying this is pure interpretation you know um but i guess that's a strength and they see that you know their story and and they communicate their story really well and mm. um this region is where that company first started and you know i still visit there every all, all the time locally as well too so um but you know those messages kind of you've got that power you know just even like have a little coffee plant outside mm -hmm. and you know me as a guy just walking through and say hey have you seen a coffee plant before this is and then you've got the lead in with the story and of of coffee and before you were you know going through so i use photos of that guy and i have photos of a place called coffee world up in queensland that I yeah. use in talks, but I have to tell you the breast is here. Don't do that. But no. our coffee farms have great interpretive tours. Yeah, and they have learned that. Uh, well, first of all, we're selling we're selling our coffee for forty dollars a pound, and yeah. Yeah. since it's nine dollars a pound at Safeway or uh, 
one of the big grocery chains, Target. Yeah. Um, you've got to sell to sell it for forty dollars a pound. There's got to be a story attached to it. It's got to be something. Yeah. That's right, and the, the provenance where things come from, and you know, I guess we, you know, live in a, a wine region here as well, and you know, it's a pretty world famous wine region, and not just banging our drum. It's 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 internationally recognised for making quality product, and you know, the the core part of, and you know, you were asking about the pandemic. I had to, you know, sort of work in vineyards because there wasn't a lot of other work going on, um, but. You know, looking at it from the glass half point, I built some really good relationships with, you know, people, you know, who were the growers, um, the makers, um, and had that insight into, you know, what, you know, you know, from the agricultural, you know, viticulture right through to the winemaking process, how those those elements make the difference as well mm -hmm. too. So uh, it was kind of nice to have that first hand you know sort of experience um i can't say i was the fastest picker in the world <laughs> um but certainly um yeah it, it gives you that whole um aspect of how it's it's not easy you know it's 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 a labor of love and passion and you know that's what what you're trying to represent as well too mm -hmm. so um and yeah it's easy to uh, uh, a friend of mine is this is specialized agriculture i've just got a very sexy bottle um label on the bottle but um at the end of the day if i don't have that it, i can't have this you know so i wanted to ask you kind of what has been your important professional networks and interpretation and guiding in in australia yeah i i guess we're pretty fortunate aren't we to have a network of of, of Good quality people and I suppose because the industry isn't huge that you do have you know some strong strong networks at times as well it's interesting yeah because we do have we have the interp australia um in the past we've been linked in with um the american nai um we've got a thing here wa called facet forum advocating cultural and ecotourism and they do quite a lot in the guiding space and it, it tends to be those are almost starting places where you make your links and then you grow it from there. So I know um, when I first got interested in Interp, when I was doing nature-based, oh, sorry, when I was doing nature-based tourism um, and I found out about NAI and I found out about people like Sam Ham and it kind of grew from there Um and having having those personal relationships with people like yourselves and you and Lisa and Sam and um, it's such a small industry that you can you can really get to know people. So um, John Pastorelli here in WA or in Australia, Gil Field when he was when he was active, he retired a couple of years ago. But there there are and the people that are in that space tend to be quite inspirational you know, that you kind of want to go and see what they're talking about and, um, you know, they're still active forever because they love it. It's not it's not a job. It's a, it's a real passion. Um, but there are, yeah, there are so many inspirational people that you meet along the way. I mean, we met quite a few in the UK, Susan Cross um, and uh, Kathy Lewis who came, they've come out for conferences that we've had here. 
um, Jane James in South Australia, you know, so there's there's folk all across the country that you kind of connect with and, and have really good conversations with. And I think that's the, you know, we're talking earlier about inter being a conversation. The people that tend to be in it love a chat and they love to have, you know, they love to kick things around and have a conversation about, well, what do you think about this? Or, oh, have you tried doing that? Or, you know, oh, this is a really interesting, you know, you go down a rabbit hole of crazy stories about things. You know, they they tend to be really interesting people to hang with. They're the, the kind of people you want to have around there. You know the um the what do they call it the fantasy dinner table you know they do fantasy football or fantasy serving or the fantasy dinner table with with these you know the, the the conversation around that those tables with those people would just be so fun and so engaging or it's like if you've got a whole bunch of tour guides together you know it's sort of um you'd usually be trying to quieten everyone down and on the tour but you get a whole bunch of tourism yeah, yeah. tour guides together yes. and you can't shut them up um <laughs> interpret conference is always much higher than any yeah. other conference. Our, our joke is asking an interpreter a question is um, like trying to take a sip out of a fire hose. That <laughs> we, we sometimes walk on people. And yeah. we, uh, when we lead these ecotourists to East Africa, it's usually 50 to 75% interpretive colleagues. Yeah. And the other group yeah. is, is Lisa's horse friends. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, they're a fun group to travel with, but there's no shortage of conversation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What's next for you? Or is this pretty much, are you, are you happy with where you are and what you're doing? And this is going to be it for a while. Um, Rusty loves it, don't you? Yeah. Uh, uh, this is a a beautiful area to be in. And you know, you probably follow me on social, social media and, and the yeah. likes as well, mate. And the hobby is finding, you know, like photographing and and the likes as well. And um, it's it's a really interesting area, you know, some really inspiring people that I have found in in the network. And you know, re living regional, as you you know, in Hawaii, it's it's, it's that network of people and and why you love to live in a place because of the people that yeah, you, the community. you the community of people that you do have in a place as well. Yeah. Um, there's certainly pressures with with that and like regional areas and over tourism and you know we don't have massive numbers but you know it it, it is a, a, a popular destination you know sort of the population doubles or triples and during those peak holiday periods and anyone that lives in a regional area a few hours from the city will know you know sort of you know, timings for when you go to super that's when I'm usually the most busiest yeah. um Australians have a very short, um, they have a very small tolerance for crowding. So two people on a beach is a crowd. I'm doing the Bunbury Geograph thing probably at least until next year, but I, I'm running to Savagely Creative as well. So I get to do some some projects. Anything you wanted to bring up that we haven't said? Dream Destination, WA, fantastic. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> so Rusty, I appreciate you selling, you're selling the... the Southwest of WA is the most beautiful part of the world, you know? So yeah, yeah I love it. Self-promotion. <laughs> no. Um, nah, I've, I've, I really 
like really enjoy what I'm doing. Um, at the moment, I share between a few different operators, so I'm not always doing the same. I, I could probably easily do full time with one one or the other as well. Um, <clears throat> but it is that whole thing, and you asked about what what people, guests, and clients what what we do have, and you know, it's it's it is very fairly varied and varied with the different organisations you might do tours with as well. Um, but I think you know the rewarding part of of what what you do, and you know, you leave people with a greater appreciation of a place as well. It's a bit like those ladies last week that I had, and um, you know, so they were expecting just a driver um, to take them around to a few venues, but they were just absolutely blown away, and that's probably lead them to come back to the region. Um, that's what I want um, as yeah. well. And then those funny, quirky things that people do as well too. So um, I had a one of the attractions in 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 um, in Bunbury Geograph is this Gnomesville. It's it's a uh, it, it started off as a protest about a roundabout or something, and people put two gnomes there. And then within a very short period of time, there were hundreds of thousands of gnomes living on this corner, literally hundreds of thousands of gnomes. And people would bring little gnome scenes and set them up and there was like a little gnomesville detention center and oh a little gnomesville netball team and yeah it's crazy it's absolutely mental yeah <laughs> but the, the the people rusty told them to go there so they they bought him a gnome my gnome sake <laughs> <laughs> I think just being able to touch people, I think that's what Interp does. It allows you to touch people without touching them, you know, to, to really to really get a connection to folk really quickly um, and connecting them to place because people like you, they like the place. They, you know, they, they feel like they're owning it and they become the ambassadors and the, you know, the word of mouth marketers and the whatever. So, yeah, and I think... Um, yeah, I mean it's an amazing tool. Yeah, and good fun to do. Evangelist yeah. is a good name for what you get if if yeah. you're yeah. No. if you're doing well, it right. I just want to thank you for being on Reflections on Interpretation, talking story with okay. guides and interpreters, and it's great to see you both again since we do this on yeah. next week. Uh, Jennifer Waithman of Queensland, Australia, will join me, and we'll have had two weeks in a row in Australia. October 13th, we have a contract administration course of four hours by Lisa Brochu via Zoom. Lisa will be teaching interpretive planning from November 7th to 10th via Zoom also. Learn more at heartfeltassociates.com slash training where you can register. I want to thank Mark Stoffel for his wonderful mandolin music from the Cookies and Cake album. And this selection this time, Yang and Yang. Have a wonderful week. Aloha. Aloha.